You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, good morning, Every Nation GTA. And my name's Sheila. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. We, last week, Richard opened our new sermon series. Cruciform did a great job. We are reflecting this, these next few weeks as we head into Easter, we're reflecting on the cross. We were reminded last week of the words of Paul, where he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This quote from last week gripped my heart. I want to look at it once again this week as we think about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal and barbaric form of execution. If you had ever seen a crucifixion, and they were common in places like Judea and Galilee, the experience would have been terrifying. It would leave you with irrepressible memories of naked, half-dead men dying a protracted death for days on end. Covered in blood and flies, their flesh gnawed at by rats, their limbs ripped at by wild dogs, their faces pecked by crows, the victims mocked and jeered by sadistic torturers and other bystanders, while relatives nearby, weeping uncontrollably, would be helpless to do anything for them. N.T. Wright and W. Bird Well, this is the crucifixion. This is the cross. This morning, we're going to consider the cross and sin. Let's read together from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And one more verse. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. So let's talk about sin. Um, I've spent a whole lot of time this week thinking about sin when you are, when you have the title of your message, the cross and sin, you have to actually kind of do some thinking personally about sin. And, um, and I've come up with a, a few different things as uh, in the journey of my thoughts during the week. So I'm going to take you there. The first thing is I was thinking about sin this week. I was thinking about sin as a list. Now, 
I personally sort of wanted a list. When I came to faith, I just wanted somebody to tell me what to do and what not to do. I grew up in a home where sometimes I got in trouble and I didn't always know what I was in trouble for. So when I came to the Heavenly Father, I thought, great, just give me a list of the things to do and then I'll be approved by the Father. Um, and I'll never get it wrong. Well, the Bible does have lists. In fact, the Apostle Paul made lists. In Galatians, he made a list of sins. He he said things like, um, he listed sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envious, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. In Colossians, he said sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Of course, there are the Ten Commandments. It's a list. Idolatry, keeping the Sabbath, honoring your parents, murder, adultery, theft, not to do those things, um, lying, covetousness. Uh, a fourth century monk, um, he wrote down what he considered the eight evil thoughts. Um, gluttony, lust, avarice, anger, sloth, sadness, vainglory, and pride. Over the years, this list evolved into what we now might refer to are the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, sloth. There's lots of other lists we could have if we looked at the book of Leviticus. But let's just take one. Let's take one of the deadly sins. So let's say envy. So your friend got a new house, or maybe your friend got a new car, and you go for a ride, and you smell that leather, and you think, just for a moment, I wish that car was mine. <sighs> Envy. The church has made its lists over the years, playing cards, dancing, drinking, lipstick, two-piece swimwear, uh... My mom used to tell a story when she was in high school in the early 1940s. They, My mom was raised Lutheran. They would go to dances at the Catholic Church because you could dance at the Catholic Church, and some of her Baptist friends would go. And these young women would... Um, well, they weren't supposed to be going to the dance, so they were sneaking. And then they would sneak into the restroom, and they'd put on lipstick. So not only were they dancing, but they were wearing lipstick. You know, the church has, we can snicker a little bit, but the church has been good at making lists of things that were sins. Here's the problem. Jesus sort of complicated one of those lists. He complicated that list of the Ten Commandments. Because he said, uh, yeah, don't murder. But he said, mm, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. Don't commit adultery. Wait a minute here. If you lust after a man or woman, adultery in the heart. Jesus took sin, not just to the list of do's and don'ts, but he took it to the heart. So, considering the Ten Commandments, I want to circle around and think about sin as idolatry. Yeah, you are going into the dive of my mind this week. Sin of idolatry. Exodus chapter 20, just the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Here's what's written. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is under heaven above, 
or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, Maybe you think that's an easy one because I've never taken a chunk of wood or a stone and, uh, and carved an image out of it. I remember quite a number of years ago, we were still living in Tennessee, and I was sitting at my dining room table doing a Bible study, and actually a Beth Moore Bible study, if you're familiar with her. And I was reading along in this study, um, and we were, we were reading from Isaiah 44, Isaiah 44, the, the last chunk of it, it's about a guy, a carpenter who cuts down a tree. And uh, the carpenter cuts down trees, cedars, cypress, or oak, the Bible says. And it becomes fuel for him. Crate, trees for warmth and protection. Uh, he takes part of it and he warms himself. He also makes a, a fire and bakes bread. Good so far. Warmth and protection and bread to eat, food, provision. But he also takes a piece of that wood and he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down before it. In the midst of that Bible study, I could probably show you what chair I was sitting in if that table was still there. I was struck. Were there things in my life meant for good and provision that I was looking to for security, for significance. It actually started me on a journey. Was it my house? I had a beautiful home. Was it the respectable job that my husband had? A pastor in Tennessee was an esteemed position. Was it my children? Ah, over the years, I actually went there and realized that um, there were places in my heart where the success and accomplishment and behavior of my children gave me significance and security. And I could see where maybe it wasn't carved out of wood, but it was a place where I was looking to something other than God. Tim Keller says this in his book, Counterfeit Gods, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth. It is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. I've heard it said that when Martin Luther taught on the Ten Commandments, he said that if we never broke that first one, no other gods before gods, if we never broke that first commandment, we actually wouldn't break any of the other ones. Uh, let's break it down. Let's take covetousness. If I live as if my value, worth, or identity is in my accomplishments, achievements, education, career, possessions, okay? Idolatry. If I live in that space, then um, in reality, that's the God I bow down to, my success. And covetousness would be the natural fruit of that. Because I would want more of those things that give me my security, my sense of well-being. So if I didn't break the idolatry command, I probably wouldn't have a, a, a reason to steal something that doesn't belong to me or to covet something that another has. Here's another great quote from Tim Keller. 
an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And so let's keep going. Because then I started to think this week about sin as neglect. Hmm. Sin as neglect. I was raised in a Lutheran church. For those of you who perhaps grew up Anglican, Presbyterian, even Roman Catholic, you might be familiar with this prayer, this prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the name of your to the glory of your name. Amen. Uh, all that I've done, that sounds kind of like the lists, or maybe even the idolatry. But all that I have left undone, or an older version says, all that I have neglected to do. That's not somewhere that I like to go in my own thinking and thoughts, because I'm not even sure what that is. What have I neglected to do? Two weeks ago at our pop-up service, Bert read um, the entire passage from the end of Matthew 25, which I'm not going to do right this minute, <laughs> but I'm going to summarize it. And Matthew 25, towards the end, it's talking about the final judgment, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, sits on his glorious throne, the nations will be gathered, and he's going to separate people. And it uses the picture of separating sheep from goats. It says, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, this this starts to get pretty sobering to me, and I hope to you. Because as, as I go on here, um, hey, the dividing line between, let's say, heaven and hell, in this story that Jesus is telling, is not necessarily what you've done, but it's what you've left undone. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father and inherit the kingdom. I was thirsty and you gave me food. I was, uh, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. And, and the, the people responded, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And Jesus, of course, went on and said, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. On the other hand, he said, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A sobering thought, the dividing line in this parable, in this story, was the things that we had left undone. We've been um, reading uh, at Richard's recommendation a book that called The Crucifixion by a woman named Fleming Rutledge, and here's a quote from that book. From the beginning to end, the Holy Scripture testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within 
that nothing short of divine inter- intervention can rectify it. So we've looked at lists of sin, and we've looked at sin going deep into the heart, what what we live for, and we've looked at those things that we've neglected. But one other thing I was thinking about is sin as power. Jesus and, and later Paul speak to us about being slaves to sin. Jesus said this, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. So if you practice sin, you're enslaved to sin. Paul said it like this in in Romans chapter 6. He actually talks a lot about that freedom and that slavery, but he says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin, bound to sin, unable to escape the grip of sin on my own uh, strength, power, and ability. And just also in here, the sin that I've done, but also the sin that's been done against me, because you know that we can be the perpetrators and we can also be the victims of sin. The things where someone has sinned against us that have left us damaged, broken, um, scarred. And how can we be freed if we are slaves to sin? Here's a few more great points from Fleming Rutledge. It is Paul, she says, who speaks unambiguously of sin as a power, not an accumulation of misdeeds. It is Paul who shows that all human beings, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Paul understands sin not as an accumulation of misdeeds, but as a power with a death grip on the whole human race. Sin cannot be overcome by human determination, human capacity, or human moral resolve. It is false and misleading and untrue to human nature to continue to think of terms in sin merely of individual avoidable acts or failures to act. Sin as a power over us in our lives, something that has gripped us and made us slaves that we cannot break free of. So sin is a list and Sin is idolatry, and sin is neglect, and sin is a power over mankind. I hope with me at this point, we're all identifying as sinners in need of a Savior. Every day in need of a Savior. Peter wrote this. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, or on the cross, it says in New American Standard. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. For our sake he... God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
Which brings us full circle back to what we read as we open today from Isaiah 53. And that quote from N.T. Wright about the utter brutality of crucifixion. He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many. He makes intercession. In other words, he stands there between us and God, making intercession for us as transgressors, as sinners. I want to close with this. Um, I've been reading about and thinking about a word that I, I don't have in my everyday vocabulary. It's the word provenient. And God's grace is actually provenient. What does that mean? It means that it goes before. Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer. Christian theology teaches the doctor, doctrine. Yeah, we need a doctor, um, a different kind. Okay, let's try again. Christian theology teaches the doctrine of provenient grace, which briefly stated means this, that before a man can seek God, God must have first sought him. Before Jesus walked on the earth, before he lived, died, and was raised for us, God went before us. God had a plan for our redemption. God had a plan that we would no longer be slaves to sin, that we would no longer be in bondage to things that we can't free ourselves from. God had a plan. He went before us. And so here again, once more to Fleming Rutledge, the circle the movement of God's prevenient going before mercy comes first. Stop there for a minute. His mercy, his going before us mercy comes first. In the disclosure of the presence of God, coming to a knowledge of God, who he is, which then awakens the sense of sin by exposing the chasm between us and the holiness of God. What comes first? God's provenient, going before us mercy and grace, where he paid the price for us before we ever knew that a price needed to be paid. That he's the one who awakens us, opens our eyes, that lets us see who he is and lets us see the sin in our own lives. Whether it's the things on the list, whether it's the things you've neglected to do, whether it's the idols of your soul, whether it's the power that holds you. God goes before us, has made provision for us, opened our eyes to it. The circle sort of goes like this. His grace before we ever need needed to know it. The understanding where our eyes are open to see what separates us from God. The deliverance that he accomplished before you and I ever set foot on this earth. The, uh, the gift of repentance in our lives, which brings us to a beautiful place 
of gratitude and worship. And as we finish today, I hope in our, in our, in our next song, as we sing together and, and as we consider in this series, this, uh, the series, the cruciform looking at the cross, I hope today's been a reminder to you that we are sinners separated from God, but saved and reconciled to him through the power of the cross. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org. 